This is Dave Green at East Line Studio, where we produce the Historians podcast. Bob Cudmore will have the latest edition of the Historians in just a few seconds. The Historians podcast depends on your donations to continue. You may donate online at GoFundMe.com slash the Historians or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historians is also heard on Rise, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled, WMHT.org, and on SoundCloud Search, Eastline Studio. And now, on with the show. On the Historian's Podcast, we welcome Tom Calarco, author and editor of many books about the Underground Railroad. How you doing, Tom? Oh, I'm doing great. Tom Calarco and Don Papson, who appeared not too uh, long ago on the Historian's, uh, Tom and Don, are co-authors of a new book about the Underground Railroad, which has uh, become uh, a treasure trove of information for researchers. It's called Secret Lives of the Underground Railroad in New York City, Sidney Howard Gay, Louis Napoleon, and the Record of Fugitives. Um, some questions, of course, about the book coming up. But when uh, Don Papson was on, uh, he ran out of time as he was talking about uh, and his, uh, an occurrence uh, during the years of the Underground Railroad, a split between the great uh, African-American uh, publisher and writer Frederick Douglass and uh, a white man, the newspaper editor of, uh, I think it was called The, North, uh, the Liberator, uh, William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, Anyway, uh, Don didn't really get a chance to tell that uh, that story. What was what was that split, and how did that uh, affect the Underground Railroad? Well, I'm not sure if it really affected the Underground Railroad, but it did have, you know, an influence on the abolitionist movement. Um, as far as the loyalties and the, and and, the, and actually the lives of, of Garrison and Douglas. Uh, well, well, Douglas was 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 a protege of uh, William Lloyd Garrison. He, he came to, uh, he, you know, he was a fugitive slave. He escaped to freedom and uh, went to New York City, and David Ruggles sent him to New Bedford, and where he, he had some experience working in the maritime industry in, in Virginia, and so I think he was a cocker. And so they put him, put him to work there. But uh, he started, you know, he was he had learned how to read, which is unusual for a slave. But he was, you know, an exceptionally intelligent man, and um, he had learned how to read. And he started reading the Liberator. So he went to a meeting, and he spoke. And and um, one of the abolitionists there, who who you know was associated with Garrison, heard him speak and, and thought, oh, this man is quite intelligent. He he'd be a good person to, to uh, lecture for us. So they, they, they took him on as a speaker, and, and he just, you know, he, he developed his oratorical skills considerably. And before you know it, he, he became a regular on, on the lecture circuit. And um, Garrison, you know, became his mentor. In fact, you know, he, Douglas actually idolized at that time, idolized uh, Garrison. And, and um, Garrison sent him out on this lecture tour of, with other abolitionists and, and Sidney Howard Gay actually was one of the abolitionists who was also on this tour. And they went into the Midwest. <laughs> in fact, at, at, at one location in the Midwest, they, they were actually mobbed. 
and Garrett, um, Douglas was actually knocked out by by uh, you know pro slavery agitators and mm. and actually suffered a permanent injury to his hand from from that occasion. Lucky he didn't die actually, mm-hmm. but um, he survived, and and that's where Gay and, and Douglas first became acquainted. But anyway, as time went on, Douglas um, they start, he be, he was so successful as a, as a speaker. I know I'm getting. I, I'm, this is a kind of long story here, but I'll try to make it quick. He, he became so successful as a speaker that people didn't believe he actually was once a slave. So he that's when he published his autobiography to tell the true story of what actually you know happened in his life. And um, it became very successful, and he went to England for a couple of years. And in England, he became you know a, kind of a minor celebrity there. People were you know were flocking to his his. Uh, speeches, and he gained a lot of support, and when he came back to the U.S., he went on another, he, well, he, he, got, he started to get the idea of doing his own newspaper, and, and he also went on a tour, another tour to the Midwest, this time with William Lloyd Garrison. Well, during this period, William Lloyd Garrison became very ill, gravely ill, he almost died, but uh, to continue the lecture tour, he told Garrison to I mean, uh, Douglas to go on on his own and do, do the lecture tour. And Douglas just, he, everybody wanted to hear him. He just became so prominent. And, and with that, you know, the encouragement of his friends in England, he started his own newspaper. Well, Garrison felt betrayed. Mm. And that was the beginning of the end of, of their relationship when, when he started to publish the North Star. And um, Gay was trying to work with, with uh, Douglas, but... It just over time, it just got worse and worse, and bef- and by that, after after you know a period of time, they just you know had a falling out because Gay was a big supporter of Garrison, and, and he actually worked for it. I mean, the National Anti-Slavery Standard was was published by the American Anti-Slavery Society, which was you know the um, organization of Garrison, and and I didn't mention this, but there was a split in 1840 in the abolitionist move between the American Anti-Slavery Society and the Tappan wing and Garrett Smith wing of the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, two different wings. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to go into it too much. It's, okay. it's, a, it's a little, you know, a side issue in the book, but it, the story is told in the book, and I think people will find that interesting. And um, as far as the Underground Railroad, you will see in the book that there were two, these two factions right through um, up to the Civil War continued. But despite the fact they had these differences, and the difference was that um, one group believed in political action, that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document, whereas Garrison did not believe in political action because he believed that the Constitution was pro-slavery and he believed in, in the Union needed to be dissolved and and that we can never, you know, have a union, which, of course, we eventually have the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking so, about... Anyway, but, but the fact is we show in the book that despite the, these factors, in, as far as the Underground Railroad was concerned, even though they had these political differences, peop, they would both sides would help each other if a fugitive slave needed to be aided. And, and there's examples of that shown in the book. Mm-hmm. So the priority 
was to help the fugitive slaves despite their political differences. So okay. that's one thing we do bring out in the book. Okay. We're talking with Tom Calarco, he and Don Papson, and let's go back to the, the book specifically, Secret Lives of the Underground Railroad in New York City, uh, talking about Sidney Howard Gay and also another uh, man who was an African-American, Louis Napoleon, and the record of fugitives. And I gather that in terms of researchers, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you will, that the uh, record of fugitives that uh, you have in the in the book, uh, listing uh, hundreds, I believe, of, of freedom seekers, giving their slave names, new names, slave owner names, uh, this is an important a document, and uh, you're uh, the first, really, to to, to bring this to the uh, table of uh, modern scholarship. Well, I wouldn't say we're the first because Eric Foner did as well. But the thing is, um, it, it, I should tell the, the the true story because there was a story told in the New York Times about it, which isn't quite correct about Eric Foner's book. And for listeners who don't know who Eric Foner is, he's probably the preeminent American historian of the antebellum period, and uh, he won the Pulitzer a few years ago for his book on Lincoln, and, you know, he's just a fantastic historian. And he also wrote his own book, which I wouldn't say is better than ours, but as, as I've discussed with him myself, compliment, our books complement each other. They're both excellent books, and um, I think people should read both of our books. Yeah. But uh, in any case, in the New York Times it said that... Uh, Eric learned of the book through a graduate student in 2007. Well, about the time that he was learning of it, I already had a digital copy of it because I had learned of it myself during research where um, I was uh, researching for another book, People of the Underground Railroad. Uh, There was a study done by Catherine Grover, and she referenced it in in her study. And... um, I thought to myself, oh, that sounds awfully interesting. I wonder what it's about. So I called Columbia University, you know, their rare books and archive section, and I said, well, what, what's in this, uh, in this record, this, these notebooks? And they said, oh, they, they gave me a description of it, and I said, gee, it sounds awfully interesting. Well, I, I had a graduate student uh, make a digitized copy, and when I got it, I said, wow, this is really something. Um, but it was very difficult to read because it's handwritten. Mm-hmm. We we have a couple little excerpt um, copies of, of of pages from the original record in our book, by the way. But um, I I showed it to Don. I I, I I photoshopped it so to to clear it up so it could be easier to read. Still, it was difficult to read. So he had it transliterated, and that's why we're able to uh, have the entire document in our book. Whereas Eric doesn't have that. He just tells about it, but he doesn't have that in his book. But we had we had you know. Um, uh, Don, as he mentioned, is uh, founded the um, North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association right. up in um, um, Aus- Osceola Cabin. Yeah. Well, actually, Plattsburgh is where it's based, but that's Osceola Cabin is, is not far from Plattsburgh. But um, anyway, he had members of his society. They, they spent months transliterating this document, so so that you know you can you can read the exact text without having to pour over this this handwriting, which is so difficult to read. Okay, point of information. Uh, uh, Tom, excuse me, uh, point of information. Yeah. Um, what, what, I hear the word. I think I know maybe what it means, but what does transliterating mean? Well, well, that's what, it, it's like we, you have something that's hard to, to read, 
in, in these old documents. So we put it in, in you know, we, we, we um, rewrite, we put the text in so you, it's readable, if you know, that's basically it. It, it's it's it when you read this this old handwriting it's it's very difficult to read you got to enlarge it to you know to look at the lettering and then get used to the person's handwriting and that kind of thing and then they have abbreviation sometimes in there and 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 all these types of things so we have to look at at the document and then put it in like for example there there was um there was a symbol for Anne and and things like of that nature are and, and little symbols. So then we write it so that it's very easily readable for the reader, and that that's what we did. And we put it into a word document. So then that would make it easier for us to, to read it and and to understand what was in it. And it and and the reader will get this in our book because we have it uh, verbatim in our book. Um, and 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 I was the one who was in charge of what what you could say annotation of it, mm-hmm. where I would. There would be sections of the record, and then I would tell about some of the people that are mentioned in the record, some of them being especially Underground Railroad agents, that, and I would tell little bios about them and who they were and what they did and their history, you know, short histories of them. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I would, I would you know, um, go into the, uh, the, the itineraries and talk about them a little bit, how far it was, and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so to give the reader a better picture of what was, you know, happening with these people when they were escaping. And, and, and in some cases, I also compared stories from William Still, because more than half the people that went to uh, Sidney Howard Gay came from William Still. And, and I don't know if uh, the audience is, I, don't, I can't remember if Don told who William Still was, but William Still was one of the most important underground railroad agents. He, uh, he, he did his own journal himself, very similar to Sidney Howard Gates, and wrote probably one of the, the, the most important books on the underground railroad back in, in 1872, the first important underground railroad book. Um, so, you know, that, that was what was made this so important, was this is the first document like that since William Still's journal. Mm. Yeah, because very few people kept records like this. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of people destroyed their records. A, a number of important agents, for various reasons, destroyed their agents. In fact, one man from um, from Delaware, on his deathbed, he told his sons to destroy his records because it, it was, you know, it was still it was still illegal, and and he didn't want any of his family members to get, you know, have problems with the authorities and go to prison or whatever, for 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 you know aiding fugitive slaves. Right. So let so, me. So you know, people were worried about that. Okay. If I could get in another question here, Tom. The um, so it does seem to me, and you were telling me I think, before we started recording, that your book, which includes the record of the fugitives from. Um, uh, Sidney Howard Gay, I believe, has become a great opportunity for researchers. I'm just curious, what you know, what is the reaction uh, to the book? When I first got you on the phone today, you said, oh, well, it's going in all these different directions. People are sounds like people are asking a, a lot of questions based on the information in the book. Well, well, a lot of people have, you know, because I think the difference between they're comparing our book and and Eric Foner's book now. Eric Foner. It, like I said to Eric, yours is a better bedtime 
book for bedtime reading because it's a, it's a narrative straight through and you know and and art sometimes uh, does have a lot of direct quotes a lot of material that I think that will lend itself to, to scholars and researchers where not to say that Eric Foners doesn't because he has a lot of footnotes in there that, that people can track down but I think ours ours will make the, the reader stop and, and examine these things a little more more carefully um, and, and there's just so much information when it's it's after reading after writing the book and then seeing it in print and then think, looking at it and even though our book is still very lengthy I mean it's it's far the publisher wasn't going to give it give us that much more room there's so much more that needs to be researched that the book is showing there for for researchers I mean, just for example uh, one of the things that I, I I happened upon, which I think is a, a new link or or lead for researchers, is the connections with the maritime industry in, in Maryland. Um, there, there were another number of intriguing incidents that happened related to events in the record of uh, uh, related to this one company, the New York and Virginia Steamship Company, and two of their captains, Captain Skinner and uh, Captain Parrish, were both involved in a number of incidents involving fugitive slaves, some that were not in the record and some that were, and some which I tied to the record by checking um, the um, maritime records in, in the new, mostly it was the New York Daily Times. They, they had these records of when the ships would come in, the names of the ship, the name of the captain, et cetera. And by um, uh, course, you know, uh, court, court correlating that with the uh, times and the dates in the, um, not times, I should say dates, um, and, and the information in the record, I, I showed, well, this was that ship, and this was that ship, you know, um, because he would sometimes would say the name of a ship, but more often he would just say a steamer from Richmond or a steamer from Norfolk or something like that, or a, a schooner or whatever, but... But, you know, in, in those maritime records of the time, they would say, oh, it was a steamer, it was a schooner, the name of the ship, the name, et cetera, you know. So I was able to correlate a, a number of those, and I have it listed in the book. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but, but that, you know, shows that there's, there, where, as they say, where there's smoke, there's fire, there are many people involved mm-hmm. in, Mar- in uh, Virginia, in the maritime industry, that were sending fugitive slaves up to, to New York. By, and, uh, and they're sending them, different. and Tom, Tom, they're sending them up yeah. by sea the, on ships. Is that what you? Yes, was, yes, yes. Right. And like Henry Ludlam was the name of the company that, that I've kind of focused in on. And there were people, not to say that Henry Ludlam, which was the New York and Virginia Steamship Company, not to say that he was involved, but it, um, but certainly people were working for him were involved. And and I'll give you an example. Captain Parrish and um, and Captain Skinner, when the Civil War began, the Confederacy seized their ships and put them into the Confederate fleet, thereby pr- putting Henry Ludlum's company out of business. And I, like I, I discussed this with Don, I said, they wouldn't just see somebody's ship like that without, you know, some kind of uh, compensation. They must have, you know, they must have had an inkling that, you know, they were up to no good. You know what I mean? No good as far as they were they were aiding fugitive slaves mm. because because there were like I said not only did I trace this to the record but other incidents that occurred that I found 
in, in newspaper accounts of the time that, that these ships were involved with transporting fugitive slaves. In, in some cases, the, the, the ones that were actually were in the newspaper showed that, these, that the fugitive slaves were, were found and they were sent back. But, of course, the captains, even if they were complicit with this, they're not going to admit it. They're going to say, oh, you know what I mean? Authorities were found a fugitive. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't know these fugitive slaves were there. You know, that kind of thing. Yep. So, but the fact is that the Confederacy seized, seized those ships and then put the company out of business, kind of, I think that that's sort of implying something, mm-hmm. I, I think. Now, I believe that uh, you were recently at a, a conference on uh, Underground Railroad research, and I'm just curious in general, what's been the reaction of, of people who are working on this? Well, um, I think people were very intrigued, and uh, we had a good response when we did our presentation. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's going to open up new areas for research, like I said. And, and people, you know, it, it went over very well. And, 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 and the thing is, I, I guess I didn't, this is something I wanted to mention before, I don't know how much time I have left but the importance of the record of fugitives, what is it? and it's something that occurred to me immediately when I first happened upon it and, and, and got the record. The importance of the, of the record of fugitives, is, and this is something I did, I was careful to do, I, I made these appendices in the back of the book that, that, that were um, uh, divided by, or not divided, but, you know, um, listed by the different, places they were sent, the major terminals or whatever, the major locations like Syracuse, Albany, the Boston, New Bedford, I put those two together. Mm-hmm. Harrisburg was another one, although they came from Harrisburg to New York or Philadelphia. Uh, all that came from Philadelphia. And and what I tried to show was that this, and did I, I don't know if I, I mentioned Albany, but and um, what I tried to show was that there was a, a, a definite network, an organization that, that that was involved with the Underground Railroad, that these people were connected and they were working together. And they, they were communicating sometimes by telegraph, um, but mostly by letter. But whatever, they, they, these people knew each other, they were connected with each other, there was an organizational effort, especially in the 18, by the mid-1850s, it was well organized, and, and the record clearly shows this. And there's been a lot of, um, if, you know, let's say, um, dispute about this among mainstream historians and the, you know, the, the revisionist mm-hmm. historians. They, they claim the Underground Railroad wasn't that organized. It wasn't. It was haphazard. That fugitive slaves, mm-hmm. you know, they ran and they, they, they did it on their own, this politically correct thing. Oh, they, they you know, they, they didn't need any help. But that, that's not true. And, and this, the record shows this for a fact. I mean... We, the the uh, Sidney Howard Day's organization wasn't the only one in New York City. At, at one time, there were three different Underground Railroad organizations mm. working in New York City after the after the passage of the Second Fugitive Slave Law in 1850. So, so you had a lot of lot of people working in, involved in this Underground Railroad. I, I know, like in Eric Foner, the New York Times, he said only a small number. Well, maybe. You could say a small number in leadership positions, but there were probably, after 1850, I'd say there were hundreds of people in New York City that were 
involved in, in, the, in the Underground Railroad. When you consider all three organizations and people that were supplementary, like in Boston, which was a much smaller group, there were hundreds, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as far as aiding fugitive slaves, where, where they ha- helped 430 fugitive slaves in a nine or 10 year period. They were helping more than that in one year in New York City. Mm. Um, when, when you combine the three organizations, so you know it's it, it was it was an organ it was an organized effort in in various locations, and they did the tentacles reached out in in Sidney Howard Gay's book. He has an agent in Toronto listed in his address. He has an agent in Washington D.C. listed, New Haven. He has five in Syracuse, three in Albany. Um, I think there's one in. I think there's one in Rochester. I'll, I'll, I don't know if maybe there wasn't, but I know he did send. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt he did. We have it documented. He sent people to Rochester as well. And um, so, you know, it, it was a, an effort with a lot of organization. And, and this needs to be researched more and, and shown that the Underground Railroad really was not a myth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there was a... Uh, op-ed in the New York Times after Foner's book came out, sort of like a rebuttal of Foner's book, saying that, you know, the Underground Railroad really wasn't, uh, you know, this whole, you know, fallacious revisionist story, which is, in, in fact, has been per- perpetrated mainly by uh, David Blight at Yale. He, he's in the forefront of this, that the Underground Railroad was exaggerated, and, and you know, it, uh, you know, they were old men telling tales, and not true. Mm. Not true. And, is, I, and this book shows that. What is next for you, Tom? Again, we're speaking with Tom Calarco. He and Don Paps in their latest book, Secret Lives of the Underground Railroad. Do you think another book is coming? I want to. I want to do a book on on this if I can get a publisher. That the thing is, um, it's kind of it's kind of discouraging. Some of the publishers we we haven't we don't have Norton like we Eric Foner. <laughs> I'd like to get a you know a, a, a more mainstream publisher so I could get more exposure to the work because you know like we have a publisher like McFarland and they're mainly a library publisher you don't get a lot of exposure and you get academics and serious people and you know I, I guess probably have to write a less academic book too but not that I couldn't do that but it, it it's it's hard to get exposure I mean it's good to have people like you have a program like this and give us a voice which is really great. So that, that helped, you know, and, um, yeah, I have, I have plenty of ideas for books. It's just finding the publisher who wants to. In, in fact, you, them. you started this when you were a newspaper reporter, right? Do I have that story straight? Yeah, start, yeah. That, yeah. By accident, kind of serendipity. It was just an accident. And, and I, it took me a while to get really involved in it, but, but it, you know, it, it, it has progressed. Hmm. I mean, you were writing for the paper in Glens Falls, were you not? Something like yep, that? that? Yep, that was the first one. That was the first article I did way back when. Well, you you had me on back. I, I told the story back in, uh, when was it? 24. June, I think it was? Yeah, sometime. Sometime then. Yep. And, you know, so this is like, that was the, you know, that tells how it began, and this is how it has ended up with, you know, an extensive study like this, and it never would have happened, actually, if it weren't for Don, because when I actually discovered, you know, the record for myself and sent him the uh, copy of it, I uh, 
I I was working on it on on a couple other books. I had a contract for two other books. I had no time to do it, and, and so he just pursued it and pushed through. And then when he got to a certain point, he said, "Oh, I," and I was finally finished with those books. He said, "Well, you you want to come back on with it with me?" And I said, "All right, I'll do it." So that's hmm. how it happened. And, and basically what he brought to it was, was uh, people power, right? I mean, people that were able to sit down and uh, that process you described. Well, he, he also did a fantastic research on, on Louis Napoleon. Nobody knew anything about Louis Napoleon. I mean, I think like even Eric Foner, he's surprised. Oh, Eric Foner's book said very little is known about Louis Napoleon. Well, Don and covered a lot of information about Louis Napoleon. Uh, um, much more than, you know, I, I didn't do that part of the research. He also researched the life of Sidney Howard Gay. Which there, I don't believe there has been a, a, major, a major biography of his life. And so Don did groundbreaking research on both of these men, and, and which, you know, really put the book in context and gave it more of a personalized story. And so, you know, we both contributed our own parts, and uh, and we... It took a little while. We meshed it together, so that I think it reads as a you know a good narrative. Mm. It must. I mean, uh, is it hard to collaborate with someone? Is it hard to collaborate? Yeah. Well, it can be difficult at times. We should, <laughs> you know how it is. But no, I think we did a good job. I I, I think the book shows that you know it worked out pretty well. Uh, Tom Calarco and Don Papson are co-authors of Secret Lives of the Underground Railroad in New York City, Sidney Howard Gay, Louis Napoleon, and the Record of Fugitives. It's published by McFarlane. You're listening to The Historians Online. I'm Bob Cudmore.